Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Damn the man. Save the empire, prom party. Ethan Embry's so cute. He's so cute in this movie. He is adorable. He's a fucking... I want to say he's a star, but that's not quite right. He's just captivating. Mm -hmm. He just shows up, has a good time, and everyone leaves happy. He's the best. (laughs) Prom party, we are covering a a very heavily requested title, and this is the closest that a Thursday is going to get to Rex Manning Day for like five years. So we're talking about Empire Records. Yeah, I think it's like... I did, I did, I scrolled ahead several years in calendars. I think it's like 2027 mm-hmm. might be, I think, a Thursday. <laughs> we're, we're a long ways off. Yeah, so we decided in honor of Rex Manning Day, we're finally going to talk about Empire Records. So, Harmony, do you remember the first time you saw Empire Records? Um, technically, mm-hmm. my first time seeing Empire Records would have been like five or six years ago in many small chunks because a bar I used to work at, uh, the, the side quest back in Cleveland, God rest its soul, uh, it was on all the time, and they celebrated Rex Manning Day every year. Mm-hmm. And so I saw bits of Empire Records, but did not have the heart to tell anyone I had not actually properly seen it. <laughs> so my first time seeing Empire Records was like four months ago. <laughs> See, and that is so wild to me, considering that music is definitely more your thing than movies, and this is such a movie for people who love music. Uh-huh. So, okay. We tried to kind of unpack why that was. It's like, let, 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 let's Craigslist missed connections figure out why <laughs> I never saw this. And the best I can figure is that Empire Records didn't play on TV, I don't think. I don't remember it ever being on TV. So I was thinking about that too. I also couldn't, and I'm sure that somebody will reply to this and be like, I used to watch it on this channel all the time. And if so... Your memory is better than mine uh, I, because I just I don't remember seeing this on TV. Certainly compared to other music movies like uh, Detroit Rock City or Dazed and Confused or even like Almost Famous, like those would play on TV. Mm-hmm. This didn't. I'm willing to point the fingers at Robin Tunney and her entire uh, Lady Bick mm-hmm. subplot. Why it didn't play on TV because uh, TV channels are really particular about suicide. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why. And then I just never had, like, a cool friend or big sister or anybody Mm -hmm. to show it to me. And it, I don't think, was available at where we rented movies, which was a drug mart. Mm -hmm. And then I I just missed it. It just never came around. Yeah, I definitely think it's twofold. I do think that, yes, I think the suicide subplot 
is probably a reason it was kept off TV. But then I was also thinking about how so much of like the underage sexuality of this movie can't be cut out. I mean, there's an entire sequence where Renee Zellweger is wearing nothing but a smock and is just dancing around. And then, you know, she also fucks a man and she's clearly a teenager. So I think the implication is that they're all like 18, though. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, legal. It's legal, but she's just young. It's still a little like, oh. Yes. Uh, So I think maybe that's why it was kept off TV. What was funny is that I was trying to remember the first time that I had seen Empire Records because this is one of those movies that I feel like has always been in my life. And part of me was like, oh, well, this is so clearly a movie that I saw with my best friend that, you know, I met when I was 14, Mm -hmm. who is responsible for a majority of my movie watching. And I sat there and I was like, no, I definitely saw it before she and I became friends. And I realized that the first time I watched this movie was with some of my like little goth friends in like seventh or eighth grade. And we absolutely did like the living funeral scene because of course course we did because we're a bunch of like little emo goth kids. Um, Robin Tunney. I love her so much. So typecasted during this period of her career. (laughs) And hey, we already covered the craft, which we talk about how terrible her wig is in that movie. And it's because she shaved her head for this one. Honestly, if she hadn't shaved her head, I don't think it would have worked anyway, because that short haircut didn't seem like it would fit for the craft. I agree completely. We all know that the best Robin Tunney hair is in Encino Man, obviously. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty okay with the shaved head. The shaved head is good, it's but bold. that Encino Man hair is just incredible. You're just biased because you love Encino Man. I do, but also that hair, it's huge. It defies gravity. Oh my God, it's incredible. Such a good look. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, I saw Empire Records in like junior high, and it's a movie that I revisited pretty frequently. I used to watch it every Rex Manning day because obviously- you gotta. You, you gotta. It's Rex Manning Day. It's a cult movie. I love when cult movies have kind of their own days. Also, it's Maxwell Caulfield from Grease 2, and everybody who's listened to even five seconds of any of our episodes knows how I feel about him. So th- this movie hits a lot of my my sweet spots. Yeah, no, that makes absolute perfect sense. So if somehow you have not seen Empire Records, here is our plot. 24 hours in the lives of the young employees at Empire Records when they all grow up and become young adults thanks to each other and the manager. They all face the store joining a chain store with strict rules. This is a weird way to phrase that, but okay. That's it? That's it. I don't think that that's a very good synopsis. That said, Empire Records has a plot. It has lots of mini plots in its plot. But this is a vibes movie. Oh, yeah. This is Slice of Life, baby. Yeah. And we watched the trailer before we sat down to record. And the trailer also is kind of really bad. The trailer is kind of awful. Like, it's kitschy and fun in, like, a very, haha, it's the 90s kind of way. It's got the highlights where it's just, like, it introduces our five main characters because apparently only five people work here. (laughs) And we get a little description with that rhymes and the gin blossoms are there, but it highlights drama. Like, yeah. it's got the moments of, like, squeaky voice, Ethan Embry screaming shoplifter into the camera. Like, it's got it's got the comedy moments, but it's framed up in this, like, coming-of-age teen drama. It's very weird because there's definitely funny moments, but then there's, like, Liv Tyler screaming, Renee Zellweger screaming and crying. Um, you have Robin Tunney's entire, like, I tried to kill myself with a lady bick. And, and AJ's it, in love. Yeah, it makes, the trailer makes this movie seem, like, way deeper and darker than it actually is. It doesn't correctly capture how fun this movie is. Correct, and I have 
many theories for that if you want to just dive right into context. All right, give me that context. What are the theories you have? So this is 1995. This is right after Clueless had came out. Clueless comes out in the summer of this year. This is now September. Mm -hmm. Clueless is actually still in theaters at the time, Mm -hmm. though it's like towards the end of its run. We brought this up recently when we were talking about Scream, which is that like, did Clueless revolutionize the teen film in the 90s? And the answer is eventually. But at that point, it really hasn't yet. And so I don't think that there is a good identity for what a teen or coming-of-age movie looks like in 1995. If you want to look at our alum outside of Clueless, we've got Casper and It Takes Two. More family fare. Yeah. Not not coming-of-age stuff, and that's not Mm -hmm. to say that there aren't coming-of-age and teen films of this year. Mm -hmm. But they're a little outside the box. Mm -hmm. So you get, like, Now and Then, which underperformed. You get Welcome to the Dollhouse, a certified indie film. You have The Doom Generation, a different certified indie film. And Hackers. (laughs) Of all of those, they don't have a ton in common with each other. I think we're still coming off of the, like, post-singles disaffected grunge swoop. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense for the vibes of this movie. Because normally when we do context, we focus on, like, major historical events and the other films, which Clerks and Mallrats are a big, a much better example of what this film's doing than any other example I could cite. I agree. And Clerks is the year before. Mm -hmm. But even then, that's still an indie film. So I think I want to focus on the music and, and the culture of music in 1995. And I think that that's a really good idea because this movie to me is speaking to the music sensibilities of teens at this point. It's not trying as much to capture, oh, you like teen movies? Try this. This is definitely, oh, you like this music? Mm -hmm. How about try this? Yes. So people like to remember the 90s, or certainly the first half of the 90s, as being dominated by grunge. And that's true for a couple years. Um, Nevermind comes out in 1991. It doesn't blow up properly until like 1992. And that's when... They start signing all of these Seattle grunge acts, some of which become superstars, some of which don't. But that really only lasts for a few years. And for those who don't know, who put out Nevermind? Nirvana. Yes. I That that felt like something where it's like, oh, I feel like everyone knows. I, I agree. It feels like something that everybody knows, but I also never want to assume that everybody knows The Naked Baby album. There you go. The Naked Baby album. It smells like Teen Spirit. <laughs> that one. There you go. So other big grunge bands end up popping off in the scene like... Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Come 1994, though, I think that uh, culturally we're exhausted mm-hmm. because grunge is no longer this grass, grassroots, thrifted counterculture. It has become commercial culture. Now we're selling yeah. grunge fashion as designer fashion because that's just the thing. It, it was unsustainable as like a mainstream movement mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean anything come 94. Kurt Cobain was very mad about it the entirety of his career. Mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain unfortunately passes away that year. Mm-hmm. Scott Weiland from Stone Temple Pilots is spiraling out of control with addiction. Mm-hmm. So is Lane Stanley from Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. Pearl Jam is picketing Ticketmaster and therefore are pretty much unable to tour for three years in the United States, so they drop off the map. And Can are we also-, also just point out that Ticketmaster has been, like, the enemy for, like, 30 years now? Yeah. No, they're the worst. <laughs> I don't think anybody who it doesn't work at Ticketmaster is a fan of Ticketmaster. I agree. It's no. just, re- like, the second you said that, I was like, something's never changed. No, not at all. So, 
after all of this and its sadness and its anger and its pain, I think I think that people are kind of exhausted and just want to have a little bit more feelings of hope. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we have REM come in. I love REM so much. I know you do. So <laughs> REM is like the counterpart to the grunge movement that sort of blew up alternative rock in the 90s. And this is obviously a very simple way of explaining all of this, but that that's the gist of it. You have college rock. You have what we would later come to know as minivan rock mm-hmm. popping off around this time. And it makes sense. We're far enough removed from the Reagan administration. We're removed from like the first Bush administration. And we, we sort of are hopeful. You, you have people like Joe who grew up through that, who were like angry and pissed off, but now they like have jobs. And they lead by example. And there is almost this feeling of, like, things are getting better. That Like, we have that come the end of the 90s with, like, the boom year of teen cinema that is 1999. Mm-hmm. Where everyone's hopeful and optimistic and things are great until George Bush and 9-11 strip all that away from us. Yeah. And also Columbine and everything else. But, like, this is kind of the year where it starts to feel like... There's optimism and there's joy and there's something for a young person to look forward to. We're also on the precipice of the bubblegum pop explosion. That hasn't happened yet, but that is coming. And the only way that that could be successful is if we're going to start kind of turning the tide and looking for that kind of music to kind of take over culture. And that's going to happen when Spice Girls land next year. Oh, I mean, even this year, I believe, is the year Jagged Little Pill comes out. Yeah. So... Women are about to shift, like seismically shift what music looks like for the rest of the decade in particular. Agreed completely. And that that, that sort of makes sense, but I also do want to highlight one other final example in context before we move on, Mm -hmm. which is that teen films aren't doing big, but teen shows are. Yeah, the, the teen TV boom is happening right about now. This is where we're starting to get things like Beverly Hills 90210, Party of Five, Party of Five Dawson's Creek is coming. Like Things are about to get very heavy with the come home from school, have something to watch, or even just like something for teens to do in the evening is watch TV with each other. Mm-hmm. You're going to have you know dates or friend nights watching these shows so everybody has something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like Teen TV is really starting to kick in a high gear right about now. Yes, which is why I think they sort of pitched this movie for the trailer as a drama. Mm-hmm. And it's such a confusing mess. That's probably why Empire Records borderline made negative money. Yeah, so how how bad are we talking here for those that are unaware? It cost $10 million to make this movie, which is like a modest amount. Assume for inflation, that's probably like $20 million, which is not like the biggest movie, but it's like a, a modest mid-budget it's film. A mid t- it's a mid-budget movie. Yeah. yeah. It made uh, $300,000. Which is disgusting. Like, yes. that is... So insulting because this movie is incredibly good. Oh, I was furious when we booted it up on our Roku mm-hmm. and the Roku rating was one out of four stars. Yeah. How dare you? I was like, how very you. dare you? I'm furious about this rating. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And Empire Records is a movie that has developed a cult following. Obviously, this is mm-hmm. a, a huge cult film. Well, especially seeing how big so many people that are in it would go on to be. Yes. Oh, yeah. So this is also one of those fun movies that people like to look back on of like, oh, remember when? Which I I do have a soft spot for those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. But I think 
what speaks to the longevity of Empire Records is word of mouth. And also this feels like a generational heirloom because like you said, you know, oh, I didn't have a big sister or a cool friend to introduce me to this movie. That's how this movie feels to me, that this is one of those really cool movies that people pass down to like their younger cousins or their younger siblings and so on and so forth. And then it continues just doing that. Because you're right, this really didn't end up on TV a lot, so you had to rent it. You and gotta know. You've gotta know. Like, like a true cult film, you have to know. You have to know. Someone has to introduce this movie to you. Um, and luckily now I think people find it easier because, one, it lives on streaming. Like, mm-hmm. if it's not on Hulu, it's on Pluto or Tubi or something it's at any given yeah. time. Like, this movie is extremely accessible. And it does get advertised quite a bit because of who is in it and what they would go on to do. Mm-hmm. But I also think that because this still does have its cult reputation, it feels exciting to find this movie for a lot of people because it doesn't get talked about the way that, like, a John Hughes movie does. No, and also, aside from being, like, an heirloom, it feels like an artifact. Yeah, it's a, it, this is a really nice time capsule movie. Mm-hmm. But before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Happy April prom party. With spring comes new changes, as if we don't have changes on the Patreon every single month. Some of the things that you can find on our Patreon this month includes the monthly This Ends a Prom wellness newsletter, a playlist made by me that's kind of just inspired by Boy Genius, since it seemed like the right thing to be consumed by, (laughs) and our suggestion box, which you're all going to be really excited because we have uh, quite a few films that are coming straight from there to your feeds in the coming months. For our Sadie Hawkins Dance mini-episodes... We have some uniquely different coming-of-age stories for boys in Rushmore and The Karate Kid. And I have some strong feelings about The Karate Kid having watched it after the next Karate Kid. We'll get into it there. We're also working our way through Freaks and Geeks still. Thus far, no misses. We're just having, like, the best time with that. And for our musical milestone episodes, we're being joined by our buddy Ben from Biff Radio to talk about the Empire Records soundtrack. And speaking of our friends. Hello, hello. This is Grace Lazos, the founder of the nonprofit theater company, Broadway Bots. We are the first fat positive size inclusive performing arts organization in New York City. And we are dedicated to doing all we can to end fat phobia in the performing arts. Our first fully staged production is coming to the Crane Theater at the end of April, and we're inviting you. Come see Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party, April 28th and 29th at 7 p.m. or April 30th at 2 p.m. For behind-the-scenes footage, previews, and early access to tickets, subscribe to our Patreon. For more information on Broadway Bods, check out our website. Thanks for listening. Grace is just the absolute best, and so if you're in the area and you're interested in going to the shows or anything else that she and Broadway Bods are doing, like it, you're going to have a great time. It's spectacular. But with all that said... Back to today's movie. 
So something that we noticed when we were watching this movie is that... There's a dog on the cover and the dog's not in the movie? <laughs> okay, yeah. First off that, there's a dog on the cover wearing headphones and that dog is not in the movie. I mean, it looks like a cool dog. He looks like a really like, radical dog. That, that's a Spuds McKenzie dog that can party. <laughs> like, you got, like, look, he's hanging out with hot girls. He's got headphones. Look, that dude's fun. <laughs> yeah, but he's, uh, he's not in the movie, which yeah. is weird. So Empire Records is billed as an ensemble film, which it absolutely is. I think if there's any one big overarching story, it's the story of Joe and Lucas. Mm -hmm. um, but the women carry this movie. The women's stories and their interactions and their arcs, that is the meat of this movie. Those are the significant parts? Yeah. Because like even, even if you want to go ahead and point to like the five that are pointed out in the trailer as the important characters, where we don't even focus on Joe and hardly focus on Lucas. Burko is not there at all. He doesn't apparently doesn't exist. I mean, I'm going to be real with you. First time I watched this movie, I did not realize that Burko and Eddie weren't the same guy. <laughs> That's funny. They, they kind of seem like the same guy. I <laughs> thought it was just like, and they, he comes and goes like yeah. halfway through the movie. It, it's whatever. Yeah. But in terms of your five main characters, AJ's in love. Like, that's a big thing when you're a teen. Mm -hmm. um, even if you're like 18, 19 years old, because like they're going to be going off to college. It's still it's still a big feeling. Yeah. Mark's this. He's having a day. He's, he's having a good he's day. He's just a fun dude having a good time who wants to be in a band called Mark with a C. Mm -hmm. Not a big thing. He's going to hallucinate Guar. It's going to be real cool. God, I I think Guar is the coolest band whose music I don't like. R.I.P. Dave Brocky. Right. I, I love everything about Guar other than their music. It's like how you feel about Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, I love Sonic. <laughs> I love him so much. I can't fucking stand playing his games, but it's the exact same thing, yes. But our other characters are th the three women. You mm -hmm. have Deborah, who is, uh, she has a whole lot of feelings. Mm -hmm. She has her Lady Bic scene. She has a funeral scene. She cuts all her hair she off. She shaves her head. Um... Joe, you can't, you gotta find my mom if you want me to, if you wanna call her, let me know. Uh -huh. Like, she has many things going on. You have the, the, the sort of slut thing of Liv Tyler kind of wants to be a slut, but she doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. And Renee Zellweger's like is, but she feels weird about it. Mm -hmm. And she wants to be a singer and Liv has a speed problem and like such bigger feelings than just like, I'm in love or I want to be in a band. Yeah, the, the women are going through some really complicated shit. And especially because, so Liv Tyler is Corey and Renee Zellweger is Gina. And there's there the problems they have are actually explored and fleshed out. And we understand the root of a lot of it. Whereas the boys' problems, we kind of don't. Like Lucas- I feel like we observe their problems. Yeah. We don't actually fix or explore their problems. We just kind of are- in, we're, we're privy to them. Yeah. And the only man that I think that we do do that with is with Joe, and, who is and the Lucas manager. to an extent. And Lucas, because it's related to yeah. Joe. Like, AJ, we kind of do. Like, you know, he doesn't know if he wants to go to art school because blah, blah, blah. Like, I get that. But it's also kind of a non-issue because the Corey story takes over mm -hmm. uh, the AJ story. And it's, it's because of his association of being in love with her. Yeah, because like... Would he have gone to art school if she wasn't going to Harvard? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I just, I find that very, very interesting. And instead of starting with the women, because I think there, there's just way more to explore, let's save them and kind of knock out some of the, the guy stuff. Mm -hmm. I Let's bro down. Let's bro down. <laughs> I want to shout out how much I love the character of Joe. He's marvelous. I think that he is so fantastic and he represents a character that we really don't see, which is kind of like the reluctant father figure. And obviously 
there's the archetype of like the lone wolf cub sort of situation that we see in like The Last of Us. Sure. Where it's just like single dad, de facto daughter, that yeah. sort of thing. Anytime there's that age thing and it's not a romantic thing, it becomes a, like a, a parental bond. Right. I was just rewatching Rocky Balboa. Yeah. So like, it's Similar. like that. Yeah. So not counting that because that is its own different archetype. I'm talking about like a a man who is becoming the de facto like parental figure for a lot of kids. Usually that role ends up on women. Mm -hmm. They become like the mother hen type or the dead mother type. It doesn't happen with men a lot. Oh, it's because we consider dads like the deadbeat who are going to split. It, or we consider them like fun party weekend dad. We yeah. don't consider them like actual authority figures or they're hard asses and there's nothing redeeming about them and they're mean. And here's the thing. Joe is a hard ass when he gets to that point. Like he slaps the shit out of Lucas and then goes, you know you deserve that. Right. Like, there are a couple things in here, just like blanket statement, it but, was the 90s. Well, yeah, like for the most part, like, he is unbelievable. Like, he's so mad at Lucas when he's like, where's my money? And right. then he, he goes in, he leaves the room, and then he comes back and goes, are you in trouble? Did you need the money? Are you cool? Yeah. And he's immediately concerned, but he's like, all right, I need to walk this off for a second. I need to blow off my steam for like 10 seconds. I'm going to go count to 10 and be right back. Mm -hmm. Like, Joe is such a good character, and he's the exact kind of person that you need for this specific group of, of young people. Yeah. But also to run a place like this. Totally. And I love that he is incredibly empathetic to everybody that he works with. I mean, when Gina starts freaking out after she bones Rex Manning, and she's like, am I fired? He's like, have I fired anyone today? Mm -hmm. Why would I start with you? Like, basically being like, I didn't fire Lucas, and he stole nine grand from me. I'm not going to fire you for fucking on the job. Nine grand is so much money it's, in 1995 it's, money. It's so much money now. Yeah. But like, yeah, it was way more money then. But yeah, Joe is like this wonderful authority figure in that they all respect him, but he also doesn't talk down to any of them. He treats them like equals. Yeah. And it's it's nice watching him walk this balance of being kind of the father figure and giving them the tough love when they need it, but at the same time, also being the person who has their backs more than anything. Oh, he's the rock, man. Oh, he's so good. Like, yep. and we just don't let characters like that exist anymore. Like, every boss, and I get it, it's because we're in, like, a terrible economic crisis, so every boss fuck is painted manager, as... Fuck the fuck the landlord, fuck the boss, like... Right, in a lesser movie, Joe would be the man, but he's not. No, there's a different man. There's a different man, and I Damn love Damn the that. man. Damn the man, not Joe. Joe's great. Joe's the best. <laughs> Joe innocent. <laughs> um, Joe, see, Joe is also, he because of, like, age thing, I'm assuming that Joe is, like, 40-ish, mm -hmm. cl like, close to 40, 35 at least. It feels like... He's a father figure, but it also could just be, like, that older brother that went to college when you were, like, in second grade and is mm -hmm. back now. So there is still this, like, familial bond with him. And, like, he, he scooped up Lucas. Yeah, that's that's a really lovely reveal is that Lucas used to be a bigger problem than he is now. Like, now Lucas's problems are that he has good intentions. He's just kind of a weirdo. He's kind of a doofus. They're all kind of weirdos. But, you know, he was in a bad place, and Joe gave him a job, gave him purpose, gave him responsibility, and it helped him get in line, which we then will later see with Warren, uh, Brandon Sexton from Welcome to the Dollhouse. Love him. He's going to be a weirdo who ends up on here randomly. Look out for that later in April. <laughs> yeah. So so Joe is also kind of this, this you know, un unofficial foster parent for a lot of these, like, lost kids who are really messy. And, you know, they're able to confide in him because ultimately he's not their mom and dad. Well, think about, like, the 90s. And, like, this is obviously, like, a little bit before our times. Like, we, we were birthed. 
we we were children. Yeah, I'm five when this movie we hadn't comes out. Gained, I'm in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, like we hadn't achieved like consciousness as living beings outside of like sustaining ourselves and pooping. Hey, to be fair, I'm I'm kissing girls on the playground this year. Well, aren't you a fucking pro? Yeah. I was falling down a lot. <laughs> I went to the emergency room a lot when I was five. I got injured. I have so many scars. <laughs> you do. I've seen them. All right. Um, but think about this in like 1995 times is this is the latchkey generation. Mm-hmm. This is like the party of five generation where everyone mm-hmm. is just like, I don't know. I don't have parents. Dad left. People are getting divorced. Or everybody's uh, working the, all the, the time. The economy has crashed. So like single moms are having to go work 18 hour shifts at the diner and are gone all night. And it just... This is this is the kind of character that you need to see during this time. Mm-hmm. And they walk such that fine line between him being responsible but still likable. Mm-hmm. And like that's that's the important difference. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have been like, I hate this movie because, you know, Joe beats up Lucas. And it's one of those, yes, it, of course, he should never do that. But also, in the 90s, Tough Love was, this is what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Like... You show love <laughs> in different ways. Yeah. That's the thing is... I think that particularly with like male bonding, um, you you know, you could say what you will about like even Fight Club if you want to go to an extreme. But like men bond and show love in different ways. Um, Like I, well, well, what's 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 the what's the thing from Yellow Jackets season two of like doing boring ass dad shit is my thing. Old school dad shit is my love language. Exactly. It's. There are different ways of showing love, and I'm not saying pummeling the dude is fucking love, but it's like, it's the thought that if Joe was really mad at Lucas, he would just be done with him. Mm -hmm. He would cast him out, he would ignore him, that's when he would genuinely be mad at him. Mm -hmm. I think that that's how the relationship between these two works, Mm -hmm. and it's not a one-size-fits-all for all male relationships, certainly for like a parental older brother figure. Oh, of course not. But- for these two, it makes sense. And I'm glad that you're pointing out that it's these two because Joe doesn't communicate in this way with anybody else no. but Lucas. And it's clear because it's like Lucas is the rough and tumble kid that he, you know, kind of reformed to some extent. So he's, yeah, he's, he's like a little brother. Yes, it's like his little brother. Yeah, like, it's like, you, I, you can't pick on my little brother, but I can kick the shit out of him, yes. Right. <laughs> and it's also that situation of we also don't fully know what's going on with Lucas's home life mm-hmm. uh so we don't know how i don't know if lucas has a home life that's the thing we don't know if Lu- we he, don't know about most people's he homes clearly he went from delaware to atlantic city in the middle of the night and no one was looking for him mm-hmm. so that tells you a lot i mean my understanding of lucas is i think he's a couple of years older than everyone else yeah he strikes me as being like a 22 ish old character versus everyone else being like 18 19 lucas joe Where's the money? Joe, the money is gone. Yeah, I know it's gone. Where's it going to? Atlantic City. Atlantic City? Yeah. Is it coming back from Atlantic City? (laughs) Uh, I don't think so, Joe. What's it doing in Atlantic City? Recirculating. And while we're on the topic of Lucas, I'm obsessed with Lucas because he is such a weird character. Well, especially because he's a weird character that apparently got weird overnight. Right. Like, they literally say... You were normal yesterday, and now you're like this. Like, what's going on? He, he, like, had this transcendental moment of clarity, and now he is, like, one with the monk. Mm-hmm. And he has <laughs> just this unwavering optimism that everything will be okay. Like, that, mm-hmm. that is the central point of this movie, as opposed to, like, 1992, where, like, 
fucking singles and welcome to the winter of our discontent or something like that. Right. There is hope that somehow, some way, everything will be okay. He doesn't know how. Who knows where thoughts come from, man? But everything will be okay. Like, it, we want to believe that it's going to be. We just don't know how. Well, yeah, because we mustn't dwell. No, not today. We can't. Not on Rex Manning Day. Of course. No dwelling. <laughs> and I, I do like that. I like the idea of, like, no dwelling. And obviously that line comes from Mark because he's being a smartass, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just so delightful. But I love him. But I like the, the central conceit of don't dwell because they're all dealing with these really intense problems but dealing them with their own way. And the mm-hmm. idea is, like, don't dwell on it. Like, let's find a way to get through it or get around it, but we're not dwelling on it. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that when we have characters like AJ, who is like, you know, oh, I got to tell Corey that I love her. And he's, you know, telling Joe. 137 specifically. 137 specifically, uh, which I think is such like a teenage thing is setting yourself like an arbitrary deadline when like time doesn't matter, kid. Um, But I also love that he comes to Joe like, can I talk to you about this sort of situation? And Joe's like, well, my wife left me for another woman and my girlfriend, you know, (laughs) called the cops on me or met me with a gun or whatever he actually says. He's like, does that qualify me? And he goes, well, yeah, I guess. And just like keeps going because it doesn't matter. He's like. This is who I come to for these problems. So whatever Joe says, I'm going to take take seriously. Yeah, Joe Joe is the Swiss Army man. He fixes everything. Yeah. <laughs> he facilitates. <laughs> so yeah, AJ, you know, obviously loves Corey. And I have such a soft spot for AJ because I think, one... He's cute. He's so cute. Um, and he is a little bit of a puppy. I like his, you know, gluing things. He's uh, art, He's an artiste. Don't question his art. Yeah, I can't. I, I shouldn't have to explain my art to you, Warren. Uh, like that, I think is just wonderful. But at the same time, he is kind of a doofus high school boy mm-hmm. because he's trying to figure his life out but can't. Um, he needs to come clean with Corey, but he can't. And then when he finally does come clean with her, it's in the the worst possible time, and he doesn't fully understand why it's such a bad time. I mean, you you don't even realize until like that moment. He's been so consumed with his own feelings, like, and, and expressing them to her, that he has somehow missed that she is lusting after Rex Manning the yep. whole day. Yep, that has just, like, completely just been lost on him. Entirely. And so, that feels very high school boy. Oh, yeah. Where you just, you are so transfixed on your goal that you just completely miss all details that might obfuscate your goal. Mm-hmm. So that leads us to Corey, who I obviously adore because I adore Liv Tyler. Mm -hmm. But I think Corey is such a cool character because a lot of times when we have the quote unquote girl who works at the record store, it is a pretty in pink sort of situation where like she's really alternative or she's really- The girl who can hang. She's the girl who can hang or she's really artistic. Like that's usually who the girl is. And Corey's not like that. Like, Corey's going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And we do learn that, yes, it's because she has been mainlining she's, speed. she got nothing but time. Yeah, so she can focus. But, you know, she's going to Harvard. Like, she's an Ivy League student. Um, we see her getting in the car. She comes from a pretty well-off family. Mm-hmm. Um as far as, like, her aesthetic is concerned. Like, she's a pretty cool 90s girl. Like, she's got plaid and got some boots on, but, like, she's still wearing a baby blue sweater. Mm -hmm. And she's obviously fixated on a washed-up pop star, so she likes pop music. So she's kind of a normie compared to a lot of these characters. I I think so. Uh, I do love that there are multiple girls as opposed to, like, the the one one girl girl in a group of guys who can hang because she... I don't know. She can name every ACDC album or something. It's just right. like, oh, I'm cool and I can tussle. It's 
that's not the case with her. Yeah, which I really, really like. It's really refreshing. Like, and that shouldn't be. Like, that's how you know the bar is in hell, where Mm -hmm. it's like, we're thrilled that there are three women here that all work at the same shop, and it's not set up like a 90s sports movie where there's one girl in a backwards hat. Well, that's because, that's why I think this is a difference in an ensemble movie and a variety of coming-of-age stories all combined under one roof. But it's not a boy movie. Right. And we are just now getting to the point in the 90s where we are starting to see mainstream attempts at teen girl films. Yes. Yes. And yeah, I, oh God, I love this movie. Um, But I love Corey as a character because she doesn't feel like an archetype in like a lesser version of this movie, I think Mm -hmm. is really, really refreshing. And the thing is, like, I think she's also really relatable in terms of her lusting after this pop star, because I feel like when you are a teenager, and maybe even still today, where there's that one person or that one band or whatever, where you know it's not reality, like, it's so beyond the realm of possibility, but you still have, like, that nagging thought in the back of your head, like, oh, maybe what if? Like, you'll see TikToks or Twitter posts of people who will be like, here's me dressing up for this One Direction concert in 2007 Mm -hmm. because I was convinced that Harry Styles was going to see me in the crowd and scoop me off my feet and we would get married one day. Like, that is the bizarro sort of mindset that a lot of us have when we're that young. I mean, even as adults, that happens all the time, like... Married couples have, what, the hall pass or whatever? Oh, their hall pass for their, like, one celebrity. One or five or whatever, because some people are a lot more, like, flexible on how many celebrities are free game. Right, and it's like, what is the likelihood that that will ever happen? Like, slim to fucking none. True, but there's also, like, this thought of, I don't know, maybe y'all should just communicate your things. If you want to fuck other people, then <laughs> communicate well, obvious, that you want to fuck other people. Obviously that. But what I'm saying like is like But like specifically that's... idolizing a celebrity? Yeah, but like it's an entirely different mindset as an adult versus when you are a teenager. Oh, no. Because but... when you're an adult, there is a little bit more grounding. Like you know this isn't going to fucking happen. Mm-hmm. But hey, what if? But when you're a teenager, even though you tell yourself this isn't real, this isn't possible, there's still that suspension of disbelief of but what if? So I guess my question for you in this instance then, did did you have somebody or some multiple somebodies that you were like, oh, goodness, (laughs) Um, my sexy Rexy. (laughs) Ew, I would never do that. Um, (laughs) What's weird is that like it's it's yes and no at the same time Mm -hmm. because on one hand it was yes, there were definitely celebrities that I really thirsted after, um, but I was in like this weird stage of like – like, because my queerness in my younger years is really weird in that, like, it was never a secret, but also, like, the heteronormative sort of conditioning that happens is that I didn't vocalize it nearly as much as I should have. Like, I was really into Allie Larder, mm-hmm. like, really into Allie Larder, like, from Final Destination and a ton of other movies, mm-hmm. um, as well as, obviously, Lily Sobieski, which I've talked about many, many times yes. on this show. I loved her so much. Um, but those were not the ones that I was really, really vocal about. Um, and the one that I was really vocal about is really not a great situation because it was definitely Jesse Lacey from Brand New, who, as we would learn in later years, is an actual sex pest. And it's like, oh, yeah, the man that I was thirsting after as a 14-year-old, 
mm, he probably would have thirsted back if he knew me. Yeah. And that's that, opening a can of worms I don't want to open. That wouldn't have been off the table, and that is upsetting. That's <laughs> fucking terrifying, right? Because, again, like, there's there's that sense of fantasy of, like, this isn't real. Like, we talk about it now with Stan culture, and obviously there are some people who take Stan culture way too fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. But there is this idea of like, well, this is not real. This is not possible. So it's fine if I thirst like this because it's not real. But the internet has closed that gap. And yeah. now it's become very real. And now Pedro Pascal is like, please stop calling me daddy in public. It's fucking weird. It's extremely weird the way people talk to celebrities like they're not people. Um, we we see this a lot, uh, specifically recently with pro wrestlers getting stopped at the airport and getting stalked and stuff like that. Leave Rhea Ripley alone. Leave Let her, her alone. get to her gate. <laughs> yeah, like shit's fantasy and reality. Like social media has fucked up like our perceptions of that really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but allow me allow me to paint you a picture here. So there's a, there's a video out there. I'm sure you all can find it uh, without looking very very hard. It's from like 1988 or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a performance of Kiss by Prince, mm-hmm. but it's performed by Tom Jones. Oh, Tom Jones! And I will say, quite firmly, oh, this video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it it Tom Jones, who is now like twenty five years into his career, is like sweaty and very leathery. And just really getting some dad dance moves at a wedding out on stage in his tight black jeans for like a bunch of 45-year-old Midwest women who mm-hmm. are going to throw panties at him if they get the first shot. Mm-hmm. There's something about that where I'm like, oh, I, I, I want to fuck Tom Jones's energy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to fuck Tom Jones the man because that's that's the difference where, mm-hmm. where, where Corey wants to get with Rex Manning. Yeah, she wants to fuck Rex Manning the man. She wants the fantasy, at, at the very least, of Rex Manning the man. But the reality of it is, if I was given the option to be like, oh, could I fuck Tom Jones? I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> not, not, not even like those pictures from the 70s where he was very hairy and in like banana hammocks mm-hmm. where he's like at his most like that kind of guy sexy that is, I think I respect... <laughs> Right. I respect the commitment to being that guy, but I don't want that guy. Uh-huh. But I want the bravado. I want to fuck the energy of that specific performance <laughs> for these Midwest women. <laughs> that does it for me. But it, it's the fantasy and the reality colliding where, I don't know, fucking dog chasing a car. You don't know what you do when you get it. And that's kind of what happens with Corey, mm-hmm. where I don't, I don't know exactly what she had in her mind of what it would be like. I mean, there is. Um, I think a bit it was of, supposed to be romantic. Yeah, there's a romanticization of what's going on. Like she lights candles. She makes it way Very more classy, way more special like than it should room. be. <laughs> and like what I what I do respect about Rex in a, like a really fucked up roundabout way is that he turns her down more than um, once. More than like once, he does not take her seriously. And the reason he doesn't is because he is very aware this means way more to her than it ever would to me. And, mm-hmm. like, that's kind of fucked up. Well, especially because like, he's, like, had his ego bruised for the last couple hours. Right. Because, okay, so we'll talk about Rex Manning as a character in a second. But he realizes very quickly, this is not just somebody who's like, hey, it would be fun to fuck a celebrity. This is somebody who's like, I have been fantasizing about this for my entire life. And he's like, that's too much. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not into that. We're into different things. Right. I would be cool... Rex Manning is sitting there going, I would be cool getting my dick sucked. I do not want to take your virginity and have you fall in love with me. Right. Like, that is that is not on his thing to do. And, like, again, it's a fucked up way because he does have sex with Gina, 
again, somebody who is quite young and he should not be fucking. But, but it's, it's, different it's different intentions. Yeah, Gina like, is... She's doing it because she wants to conquer him. Yes, because she also wants to rub it in Corey's face because Correct. they're fighting. Yes. Um, but her wanting to have sex with Rex, like... It is strictly sex. It's, it's just sex. It's, there's no emotional intent behind yeah. it. Yeah, there's no emotional intent. This is just, hey, we're doing it because it's fun. Who fucking cares? Mm-hmm. Um, and with Corey, it would it would have been different. And the fact that he is at least wise enough to know the difference, I think, is very cool because I think there are a lot of celebrities who are not like that. There are a lot of celebrities who love the idea of fucking girls that are obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. And like, that's emotion. It's a a power play. It's a power play. And like, that's super emotionally manipulative. But like you and I have friends that are quote unquote celebrities or at least like moderate celebrities. In in their own circles. Yeah. In their own circles for sure. And like, they have talked about this before where they're like, yeah, there is a difference between somebody who's like, Hey, let's hang out. And like, after the show and we'll just like get a drink and we'll it'll be cool and then there's like fans there's people and then there's fans there's people who know who you are and they think that's kind of cool and then there are fans Mm -hmm. and like that's different and like that power dynamic is different and the fact that some people don't recognize that power dynamic is different is a problem Mm -hmm. and obviously like if you want us to talk more about groupie culture go listen to our almost famous episode yeah (laughs) So while we're talking about this sort of situation, let's talk about Rex Manning Day. <sighs> Maxwell Caulfield, I love you so much. I know you do. And he's, listen, he is perfect casting as someone whose career should have blown up after Grease 2 and didn't. Mm-hmm. He, it, it's kind of perfect meta casting, and he's still very handsome. It is. And I'm going to do that fun thing that I get to do sometimes on the show where an article that I cite is something that I've written. <laughs> uh, but Anyway, let's let's hear from, <laughs> from Maxwell Caulfield expert BJ Colangelo. Uh, yeah, so last Rex Manning Day, I wrote an article called Casting Maxwell Caulfield as Rex Manning was a Metastroke of Genius because I agree um, there is no one else, I think, on the planet who could play this role. Like, it has to be him, and mm-hmm. it's perfect. And the reason being is that Maxwell Caulfield um, had done some acting as a kid. He also was an exotic dancer for a period of time. There are Good some for him. incredible photos of him from, like, the 70s that you can check out that I recommend. They're oh, fantastic. Oh, I am. Keep they're, talking. I'm Googling. <laughs> they're so good. Um, and they're all beautiful and like very tasteful, but they're like tasteful thirst traps. Like they're incredible. Um, but he gets cast in Greece too. And at the time, like Michelle Pfeiffer is a relative unknown. And uh, so obviously she blows up after this. But everybody was kind of prepping for Grease 2 to take off and, like, change their lives. Like, they thought they were going to be sensations the way that John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John were overnight. And then that didn't happen. Like, because Grease 2 didn't perform well. It completely bombed. And so he kind of went into the ether. Um, I'm sorry that every big movie he's in bombs. I know. It kills (laughs) me. It's not his fault. It kills me. Also, these photos, uh, they're magnificent. I know. I told you. They're they're fucking (laughs) great. I'm loving uh, his work with the towel. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, he's fantastic. Um, So he had been acting for most of his life. This is a huge role for him. It's part of a big existing IP. And then it just doesn't go. Like, it Mm -hmm. doesn't go... Uh, he does continue acting for much of his life. He does a lot of theater. He pops up in a lot of like weird sci-fi movies. Um, and he that's just kind of what he does for a very long period of time. Um, but then they get Rex. He gets the role of Rex Manning. And he has admitted that like he didn't want to do it at first because he was really worried about like 
like, what does it say about an actor who is willing to take a role of, like, a washed-up celebrity? It, it's it's admitting something. Exactly. So he was worried about it, but then, obviously, Empire Records, like Grease 2, does not do well. So he just kind of is like, eh, whatever. Like, it's a movie I did. It's another movie I did that doesn't do well. But mm-hmm. I guess this is, I guess this is just my life now. And then the internet embraces Rex Manning Day. And his giant hair. And his giant hair and that like purple fringe nightmare of greatness he's wearing and oh, the and terrible the tan. the matching pants. Oh, it's so incredible. The equally fringed pants. The whole ensemble is fantastic. <laughs> so he starts kind of embracing the cult status and he knows that every year on Rex Manning Day, his social media accounts are just going to be flooded. Mm-hmm. He loves it. He thinks it's so fun. He said it just doesn't go away. It's a showbiz oddity. Um, he also believes that Rex Manning deserved a more prominent career and that it's his arrogant demeanor is the result of bitterness and an inflated ego. Um, <laughs> he, but he loved playing the role. He said, because Rex Manning is so full of himself that he's destined to take a great fall, which obviously he does. I mean, he, he doesn't even like the chair they give him. Right. He's <laughs> like, very particular. And I, I love the casting because it does make perfect sense to have the guy who was supposed to be somebody play the guy who was somebody and now was a nobody. Mm-hmm. I just think that it's brilliant. It's it's so funny. And every year people watch this and then they realize he's in Greece too and it like short circuits their brain and then that just makes me happy. Um, but I love that he understands this character and knew exactly how to play him and he does it magnificently. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi. What's your name? Kathy. K-A-T-H-Y. Okay. You know, I've seen every episode of The Family Life. Oh, yeah? And you were my favorite singer in high school. Who's your favorite singer now? You. It's still you. Hi. Hi. Who shall I make it out to? Denise. Denise. I've always loved that name. Thank you, but it's not mine. It's my mom's. She loves you. I've never even heard of you. Does your mother still have her own teeth? Forget it. Cool hair. I uh, used to work at an adult store. And one time we had like a month worth of hype and build up to like specifically two. But they brought along a, a, a third friend of like these wonderful like adult like MILF actresses who were big names and they were going to come in and do a signing and it was going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. And mind you, this was an adult store between two strip clubs that were constantly getting shut down for um, giving blowjobs and handies in the back rooms. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that they worked well because they were basically tagging out on which one was open so that they didn't compete with each other. And it was also uh, near an underpass by the airport. To, oh, great. to really give you a, a lay of the <laughs> land. You know, trying to buy your porn and then suddenly you just hear from all that plane flying overhead. Yeah, it was it was absolutely that. I actually have a shoplifting story that would be good to share from this place too. But there was like promotional material hyping it up at all of the adult stores under this regional chain for a month. And I think the day came and they were there for like two hours. I think like six people came. Oh, that's so shit. I would feel bad if the two main ones who were coming were not really mean. Oh, okay. <laughs> they were very mean. And so I don't feel bad about it. Their third friend was lovely. Oh, well, that's she, good. She was super duper nice. I was a big fan of her. But um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very awkward being a part of a of a signing that's not going well. Yeah, that is really odd. I used to have those feelings a lot at Cinema Wasteland, which is my favorite movie convention in the world. It's mine too. It's such a delight. Um, if you're in the Ohio area and you've never gone to Cinema Wasteland, you gotta go. It's life changing. Um, but they have all of like the celebrities in the back and there's usually like three or four people that are like really, really well known. Everybody wants to go see them. Everybody wants to get their autograph and take pictures. Tom Savini, Linnea Quigley. Yeah. Those, those types are usually like the ones that'll have like the really, really long lines. But then Mm -hmm. there are people who are from like a very specific cult movie from 1964 that you forgot about or what have you. And they may not get as many people, but the people who are there for them are hype as shit. Are hype as shit. And like that's always really exciting to see. And they do get like movie people, but they do also get adult film stars. One of my favorite things I've ever seen is Joanna Angel signing the flashlights that are modeled after her own body and like signing them to people and her being like, and remember, like, don't put lube there, it'll go away. Like that shit's hilarious to me. Joanna's so cool. She's and so funny. I love, I love her. her. She's great. <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's always interesting to see those signings and see like, you know, someone will sit there all day and have no one talk to them, but then they'll have one person that gets it mm-hmm. and it then it's all worth it and then it's fine. But when we watch Rex Manning, there's not one person. They're all They're all some kind of bad. Yeah, they're the, all some kind the, of way the of lady making who him decides feel bad. to come and sing. I love her singing his main song with like operatic voice because that's the only way she knows how to sing. Uh-huh. Uh, incredible. That's great. Uh the lady who's signing it for her mom. Mm-hmm. Um oh, you were my favorite singer in high school. Well, who's your favorite singer now? Uh, uh, it's <laughs> still you. you. It's still you. Uh, every single one of them is 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 bad and is really driving home the fact that he is indeed a a has-been and he is not cool. I do love though the inclusion of the gay men as well Mm -hmm. because so many of these like womanizing pop stars from the 80s and 90s had huge, huge, huge popularity with gay people and a lot of those men were not super chill about it. No. Um, So that's a nice inclusion. I know it's supposed to be a joke at the expense of gay people but in my brain it's in my brain I don't read it that way. I read it as like oh yeah this is an entire untapped market you have that you're too fucking stupid to let flourish, you oh, dummy. Oh, yeah, it, it's not even, like, a thing that they think about. They go, oh, well, he actually tests very well in the teen male audience. Right. And they even call out going, like, oh, it's because gay boys love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just, like, a reality more than it is a joke. And the fact that they don't know is the funny part. Yes. Like, it's not an expense at gay people. It's the fact that, like, wow, you guys really don't know your audience, huh? Right. And I think that that's great. It's, like, that delusion of, like, oh, you're still this like hot shot and you're not, which makes me want to bring up the 90s Fest concert that I went to because, you know, Jim Blossoms are on the soundtrack. Sure. Every single band knew you liked this song when you were in high school or even Smash Mouth was like, you like this song probably because your kids have made you watch Shrek a million times. Like everyone fucking knew who they were Mm -hmm. except Sugar Ray. And Mark McGrath and Mark is, McGrath came out there. Got at, the biggest head in like 2010 or like 2011. It was been like 2011, 2012 because I could drink. Um, so <laughs> he comes out there and starts acting like he's at fucking Woodstock, and he's like, "We got new songs here," and everyone's like. Why the fuck are you playing us new songs at a 90s, like, nostalgia fest? Play Fly and get out of here. What is this, man? (laughs) But he fully was operating as if, like, he was the hottest, coolest band in the world. And everyone's like, what the fuck? 
no, that is not what's happening here. We are all drinking wine in the grass outside. Like, what? Play play your really old stuff. Play your stuff when you were a new metal band before selling out. Play that stuff. <laughs> it was so weird. Oh, I mean, my God. Mark McGrath just comes off as the biggest douchebag. And here's the thing. I don't know the man. I don't know. Maybe he's super nice. Everything I've ever seen seem, makes him seem like he is really self-obsessed. Yeah. Maybe he's nice. I don't know. All I know is that when I was sitting there wine drunk with a bunch of Midwest moms and he comes out there with, here's our new single, I went, what? And they also <laughs> recorded a live album? They recorded their live album. There was a stand-up comedian who was making weird Jewish jokes and we were at a place that has like the highest population of Jewish people in the Chicagoland area. So everyone was just booing him. I was like, this is awful i have so much secondhand I, embarrassment for this guy i right love now. this train wreck it's it was so a nightmare bad. and the, the best part is sugar ray wasn't even headlining smash mouth was as they should how are you gonna record a live album when you're not even the fucking headliner like, are you kidding steve harwell got kicked out of smash mouth for being uh being a weirdo being, being a little alt-righty uh and so i don't know what smash mouth's gonna do but how are they gonna replace such an, a talented singer as steve harwell smash mouth guy <laughs> i don't who, even know in 2005 was on the surreal life which is a show for has-beens <laughs> well for what it's worth the rest of that lineup was gin blossoms vertical horizon and fastball and they were all great <laughs> i love that <laughs> they were so good <laughs> and also for what it's worth that season of the surreal life had a really good cast other than him <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> but okay hold on uh i actually want to talk about the music of rex manning for one second because his song it's whatever it's it's pretty disposable. I think he's like R Rick Springfield mixed with like Rico Suave. Uh I Rico Suave feels very correct or at the very least it feels like a Swayze's one hit. Oh yeah. Like it it could be that sort of a of a caliber thing. Yeah, yeah. But the people at Empire don't have a lot of pretension about the music they listen oh, to. Oh, not at all. It's so refreshing. Like uh this is like a who's who of like people who are coming out post grunge like Toad in the Wet Sprocket, Cranberries, Gin Blossoms. Like, it's a very good soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. But there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't make the soundtrack because there are a lot of legacy songs. So mm -hmm. you have, like, The Buggles with Video Killed the Radio Star, which is the perfect song for setting up Rex Manning's, like, booth. Mm -hmm. It's, like, and also it's a perfect song, and I really like that whole album. Uh, the title track is especially good. But Joe is jamming out to uh, Bon Scott era ACDC. Which is like pre-80s. That's going all the way back to the 70s. They also have like the Dire Straits playing Romeo and Juliet, which is about Holly Beth Vincent from Holly and the Italians. And I'm going to plug that out because it's great <laughs> and I love it. But no one is no one is bothered by it. Like they're just kind of grooving to like this nice like acoustic love song. There's the like Euro dance pop, almost satisfaction style version of money that they play. I love that version. It's oh, great. It's, it's fantastic. But they have a variety of stuff in attend in addition to like aggressive punk stuff that gets the customers riled up too or too much in the morning. So the people that work there, they're not like too good for pop music. They're not too they're not like, oh well, I mean, I only listen to punk or metal or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's not at all the case. They just think Rex specifically sucks. Yeah, and I think that that's also really refreshing because in a lot of these movies where it's about people who are working at a record store or people who are really into music, a lot of times the only things they ever name drop are like these deep indie bands and it's a lot of that hipster glasses of like, well, I knew them before they were cool. But like the conversations that they have about music are 
always really varied, mm -hmm. which I think is nice. And, you know, you even have that at the end uh, during the credits where Mark is sitting there just being like, well, the Pixies have better bass lines than than Primus does. And this is how I feel about this. And they're like having this like weirdly specific conversation. Yeah. And I, I find that refreshing because you know that none of these characters think they're too cool for school. They like mm -hmm. what they like and fuck you if you have an issue with yeah, it. Yeah, like you you can still veto someone's music choices if it's like a bad fit for the current mood. Mm -hmm. Re read the room. Mark doesn't know how to read the room. That's no. really his biggest crime. That is. <laughs> but even if you want to compare this to like Kurt Cobain, who we obviously talked about when we talked about context, Kurt Cobain got made fun of for listening to the Beatles because they're a pop band. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're not like the Melvins. They're not cool. They're not real alternative. And... That's not the case here. No, no mm -hmm. one is too good to listen to Legacy Acts in 1995, which a lot of people did act like they were too good to listen to mm -hmm. Legacy Acts. Certainly in the early 90s, there was nothing less cool than like the 70s and the 80s, especially. Mm -hmm. And come 95, it's like, oh, no, we just good songs are good songs. We're fun. With, let's, have, mm -hmm. let's have a good time. And I also think that that speaks to how much cooler the people at Empire Records actually are because people who are that cool don't have to put on airs. I mean, no. we, we talked about it in another episode where we referenced the movie Green Room that I love dearly where there's mm -hmm. this running thing of like, what's your desert island band? And they're like in a punk group. So they name drop all these like weird underground indie punk bands. I like snot shit machine. Right. Like that kind of thing. And then once they get to the end, uh, you know, she finally confesses like it's Simon and Garfunkel. I love like Simon Garfunkel. that's my desert island. It's Simon and Garfunkel. And it's like, yeah, a lot of times like the things that inspire you have nothing to do with the things that you make. Like fucking David Lee Roth of Van Halen wanted to be Frank Sinatra. He loves like, big band. He loves big band. Oh my goodness. Um, ignore many things about like the album cover, but God, the closing track on David Lee Roth's solo album is a rock cover of That's Life by Frank Sinatra, and he did record a Spanish language version. So you have David Lee Roth singing in Spanish doing Sinatra in a rock form. Yeah, that cover art, that it's was horrible. chaos. Oh my God. David Lee Roth, <laughs> pure cocaine. Every bad decision. I will sign up to watch this effeminate train wreck. It's my favorite thing. I, I love it. But for... Music like this, um, like the record store, there is this this trope that you have about talking to people in a record store, and they come across in like a lot of TVs and shows, not as being enthused to be there. Yeah. They, and the similar thing you have for people who work at like movie theaters, mm -hmm. which I know a lot of our friends have at some point worked in a movie theater, and at the very least, they have at least semi-romanticized experiences with it, even if they go like, oh, well, popcorn's annoying to clean up, and it's loud, and you can't get the smell out of your hair. And people are jerks on Blockbuster opening weekends. And they mm -hmm. have obviously their horror stories, as does anybody who's worked in like the service or hospitality industries. But there still is this idea of like, yeah, but I worked in a, I've worked in a video store. So I got to recommend yeah. movies to people. I worked in a movie theater, so I got to do whatever. And most movies and TV shows paint video rental stores and movie theater workers and record store employees as like pretentious douchebags. Yeah, they always present them as people like, uh, you don't want to listen to that. What you really need is this. Like, this is going to blow your mind, man. Yeah. Like, and that's never been the case. Like, everybody that I know who has worked in that sort of a job, they have all loved going to work every day. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of like Empire Records. Maybe they're not having like dance breaks in the middle of of work, but they're having a great time and they genuinely enjoy what they do. Something that will forever make me sad is that 
we did not live here for you to experience like the true Amoeba records. Before it moved. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was the coolest thing in the world. And everybody who worked there was like, like it was a new treasure for them. Like, oh, you need this? Yeah, here you go. And it was, everybody's so positive all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the vibes. And I think that's why this movie feels like, but both a fantasy, honestly, but um, an artifact of its time where we were, right before we sat down to record, uh, we were watching Waiting on Pluto. And Waiting feels like the alternate timeline variation of what Empire Records would become. Say it gets bought out by Music Town, and then it becomes a corporate entity, and then you don't have Joe, and you have David... Kirshner, David Keckner, the the guy who's in Cheap Thrills with Ethan, Ethan Embry. Yeah. <laughs> where he's the manager of the shenanigans. <laughs> and that movie is 10 years removed from Empire Records. It's it's corporate. Like, we have fun, but everyone's miserable. Everyone's mm-hmm. an asshole. Everyone is kind of trying to coexist in this, like, really restrictive, stifling environment where we're here because we need money, as opposed to Empire Records where we're a bit younger. We're, we're not 22. We're not 25. We're like 18. We still have our future ahead of us. We haven't had a bad time at college yet. We haven't hit the point where we're feeling like failures stuck in a dead-end job. No, we want to be here. Mm-hmm. We want to have fun. Mm-hmm. This isn't corporate America, so you can do more flexible, loosey-goosey stuff. And that's becoming an increasingly dying thing, mm-hmm. which is why I feel like this is such a a, a perfect time capsule of, of of a very specific place in time that we are rapidly losing, especially since most small businesses like this did not survive the pandemic. A lot of them got choked out in the pandemic. And I think one of the things that you see in this movie that really shows its age is how they deal with the shoplifter specifically. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we have Brandon Sexton come in, uh, lies, says his name is Warren. We don't know his actual name. We never learn it. I love that. Apparently it's not Warren. It's not Warren, but I love that. But now his name is Warren. <laughs> but now his name is Warren, uh, which I think is great. And Lucas chases him throughout the building, around the block, down the street, back into the building. You know, it becomes a big thing. Gina grabs the intercom and is like, you know, hello, Empire Records shoppers. If you look to your left, you'll see a shoplifter. We will catch him and we're going to deep fry him and serve him to the next 10 customers or whatever she says. And it's like, you couldn't even make that joke working in an environment like this today because someone would be like, um, I felt threatened and it was too dangerous. Um, she threatened to eat me and that's cannibalism. I'm suing. I mean, you're not even supposed to pursue shoplifters. You're not supposed to because because it's liability. If they get hurt on property, then it's a liability and they can sue you. If you hurt them off property, then they can sue you specifically and not just the entity that, you know, is the business. It's just a giant fucking litigation's nightmare. Yeah. And so you're not supposed to do that. Uh, They, in fact, tell you all the time whenever you work in, like, any kind of retail place. To let them go. Just let them have it. Yep. Um, Call somebody, let them have it. Yeah. So I don't follow those rules. (laughs) <laughs> because uh, when I worked at Adult Mart, there was absolutely a time where I chased a shoplifter. Okay, tell me tell me the story. Okay, so um, I got sent to the adult store that I specifically worked at at that time. I got transferred from a different one to that one because corporate knew that I was the only uh, trans person working in the Ohio stores and went, hey, guess what our most popular film genre is down, uh, down by the airport? <laughs> So they got to get all of those tourists, baby. They threw me to the lions, basically. And don't get me wrong. I made so much money for (laughs) them because I made jack shit, whether I sold more or less. Oh, fetishization. Yeah. 
they, they used me. But that said, I had a lot of fun. Because that's kind of how you have to get through a job like that. But the trans films and the fetish films and the, uh, the gay male films were all in the back. Lesbian could be in the front. Mm-hmm. But they were in like the back corner of the store with the movies. Well, yeah, we have to put the people who are going to feel shame about watching this in the back. Yeah. Well, you don't, you don't want people to see what you're browsing at when they're just on the normal floor space. So we don't keep the discs in the cases because people can steal them. Those are in drawers behind the counter. And someone's back there and he's, he's, he's very much like Warren. He's got like a, like a coat. It's like winter. He's, he's, he's being a little, little secretive in the corner. And he's clearly shoplifting stuff because we have cameras and I can look in the camera on the countertop and see clearly that he is putting things in his coat. So he ends up coming up to the counter to like walk by to leave. And I go, oh, yeah, nothing for you today. And he goes, oh, no, no, just nothing, nothing I really wanted. And I said, oh, that, that's a shame. By the way, those cases don't have discs in them. <laughs> and he just he goes like real wide eyed, bolts out the door. The actual exit behind the countertop is on the opposite end, not near the door. So I hop the counter and start chasing this man <laughs> down this, like, decrepit industrial district road next oh, to good. a currently closed strip club. Oh, good. And as I'm running after him, like, not even running, like, it's, it's like, a, like a jog, but he is freaking out. He's reaching into his coat and just starts flinging the cases into the air like confetti to just dispose <laughs> of the evidence. And, of course, it was all, like, the nastiest fucking titled gay and trans stuff that you could possibly get. Just like stretched out asshole seven. My huge hole stretched by big black cock. And I'm a lady boy tranny. Like just (laughs) the biggest mess of words you could ever have in a fucking porn title. God. Um, So that was fun. But yeah, like you're not supposed to do stuff like that. No. But like I I was not worried. Mm-hmm. Like the, what, the only time I was ever actually threatened by a shoplifter, I pulled a hammer on him. <laughs> did you just have like casual hammer? We did. Okay. This was a different job. I was working at a vintage store. Um we had somebody who would come in all the time and they were they did not have all their faculties about them. They were a little weird, but it's like, "Oh, you can browse, whatever, no big deal." And what we find out is they are stealing all of our stuff, all of our vintage clothing and anything that's worth like any kind of money. And then they're taking it up the street to a different vintage store and trying to sell it there. Oh, and my this God. Is, this goes on for several months. And one time, apparently, they they did not take the tags off of our stuff. So when they go to sell this store, they go, oh, this still has this still has tags on it from the place you clearly stole it from. Mm-hmm. So they call us and let us know. And it's like, oh, yeah, this person's not allowed in anymore. Mm-hmm. So they come in and they're just being like, hey, how you doing? Real, real friendly. And I go, yeah, you're you're not allowed in here anymore. Just I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And immediately on a dime, they went from like, you're so beautiful today to I'm not afraid to go back to prison for you. Oh, my God. And so. <laughs> We had like this cart where we could, there was like saws and hammers and glues and sprays and stuff for like setting up stuff and cleaning stuff around the, the, the store. So I'm like, um, okay. So I just reached under the counter and grabbed a hammer. I said, <laughs> let's go. And, um, their response, they, they just kind of stare at me and try to like, try to like pose me down. Try they're to like, post up. Yeah. They're posting up. And they just go, you got to leave the building sometime. And they're just like, apparently just going to like lurk outside and wait for me. All right. They didn't. They they, they went I, somewhere no, else. No, no one's going to waste story. that time. No, but like, 
Yeah, I, I threatened to hit a customer with a hammer because they basically threatened to kill me. Jesus. See, and like, that's cool shit you can get away with in like a city like Cleveland. You can Cleveland. get away with that in, <laughs> in Cleveland. You can get away with a lot of things in Cleveland that yeah. you should not be able to. Yeah. But yeah, it's just fucking, it's messy, man. Like, th- this, is, this is something you can't do anymore. And I'm not saying you should do it. I'm not saying you should do any of the things that I just described. <laughs> but... I don't know, just corporate America is just very different than small businesses or even smaller corporations. Yes, I I agree completely. I mean, because, okay, so speaking of, uh, we haven't really talked all that much about Gina yet, but like Gina pulls some stuff that absolutely could not happen. I mean, she's dancing around, not really wearing clothes at one point. Um, She obviously has sex with Rex in the back room. Uh, Gina, I love as a character because... As, as we know, I'm a staunch defender of slutty characters. I mm-hmm. love them dearly. Yes. And she gets shit on for being slutty constantly in this movie. Um, but you can tell she kind of doesn't care. Like, she does it because she wants to, and she feels good about it. The only time she feels bad about who she is as a person is when other people tell her she should feel bad about it. Yeah. Which I think is really important to see. And, you know, she even has her own insecurities that she talks about pretty candidly. Um, I mean, she has her her big freak out where she screams at people and cries. Mm-hmm. Um, but she kind of comes to terms with things when they are doing, like, the faux funeral for Deb, which I think... They, they all face their own mortality in their lives yeah. in that moment. And, and it's kind of sweet. Like, I do love the, like, living funeral sort of thing. Um, it's always really weird when you set them up because a lot of times it is because like somebody is going to pass, um, is usually the situation, but it has become like a popular thing to do if somebody in your life does make an attempt on their life. Um, I've, I've, has that become popular? uh Uh-huh. I've been to a couple. (laughs) No one has ever done that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, I I think I'm a little bit better off that that I don't need it anymore, but like that, Mm -hmm. that might've been nice. Yeah, I definitely did a couple of them in college, um, and it was it was nice. And, you know, that is kind of what happens at those sorts of things where there's a good chunk of it where it is about the person, but then it slowly becomes about everybody in the room and making sure that everybody is okay because this was a big scary thing and you got to kind of check in with your community because it's not just one person, it's everybody. Well, it's, it, that's your coworkers. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing with coworkers. It's, it's your like- work fam. It, I, I always have this bad feeling whenever I leave a job where it feels like, we'll be friends forever, like you're leaving summer camp. Right. Just like, don't worry, we'll still write and be friends after summer camp, and you kind of don't most mm-hmm. of the time. But I don't know, like certainly when you're in there, like not, most things aren't forever, but that's okay because you have each other right now, and that's your support system. Mm-hmm. You have shitty situations, but you're going to look out for each other, which they do even outside of that because – you can still look out for the people, even if you don't agree with them, even if you bicker. Like that's that's just your people. Mm-hmm. That's that's that that's a good that is a good, well cultivated environment. So I guess nobody really has it all together. No, I feel like I should welcome you to the neighborhood or something. Anyway, did you really want to do Rex Manning in the count-out room? Is that how you always imagined your first time would be? Your back up against the daily totals and your feet pounding against the safe. Oh, Rexy, stop that! You're so sexy! (laughs) 
Why are you being so nice to me? Let's save our homework moment. I also love that Gina as a character is presented as kind of like prissy, popular, slutty girl, but she's also really into music and she is a musician and she wants to be a singer, Mm -hmm. but she feels insecure and doesn't like want to be, you know, a big performer like that. And I, I think that that just adds so much to her because I think people usually look towards characters like Gina and assume like, oh, they have it all figured out. They know exactly what's going on. They are in total control. I wish I could be like that. And in reality, like, no, they're just as deeply insecure, just in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just really awesome. And I, some of my favorite scenes are the ones where she's interacting with Deb. Um, because I love Deb as a character. Deb, to me, feels like this is the stereotype girl that works at the record store, where she's really alternative. She's really moody. She's got a cool haircut. She's she's very soft-spoken. But she's like, oh, God, I she love simmers. her. Yeah, she simmers. I love Deb. But anytime she has her conversations with Gina, like, there's definitely a fair amount of antagonizing that goes on between Mm -hmm. the two of them. They're constantly picking at each other, but you learn by the end of it that part of why they pick at each other is out of love. It's that like you make fun of the people you love the most. Weirdly enough, that's the kind of thing that you see more frequently in like male relationships Mm -hmm. where you typically in, in teen films in particular, you usually see women who are just mean to each other because they don't like each other or they feel like they're in competition with each other. Correct. But guys will absolutely roast the shit out of each other, and that's how they show their love. Mm -hmm. Like, we even talked about it earlier in this episode, about how, like, Joe kind of pummels Lucas because he's like, I love you, but you deserved that. Right. Like, that's how he's (laughs) he's showing his specific feelings for him, and that's how they work it out. You don't see that as often with girls who are not, like, friends-friends. Like, they're not tight, but they still roast each other, and that's how their relationship has naturally formed. Which is interesting because... When I look at the like the closest friendships that I have, we playfully roast each other all the fucking time. Well, it makes sense for closer friends. Well, even like casual friends as well. Mm-hmm. Like if I genuinely do love them and like, yeah, it's casual. Like I only see you at work or whatever. Like there is still a little bit of that element. Um, well, you can only get away with doing that if you've built a rapport. Exactly. Like, like you, you can't have come to out have, the gate swinging. No, you have to have that level of trust, which I think like people online don't always understand that. Like, because there are some people that I talk to online, and it's because like I know them in person. Um, a, a, an example I'll shout out is uh, the guest from our Anne and the Apocalypse episode, Matt Donato, who oh, ev- everyone roasts Donato. Everybody roasts Donato all the time online. That's, that's his place in the group. <laughs> that's his place in the group. But people see that happening and they are not like part of that like friendship dynamic and they'll try to roast him and it's like no 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 no, you can't do that you don't Mm -hmm. know him that well that's really weird and parasocial don't do that yeah or even people who like i don't know interact with you and me that i see where someone will just be like someone will call me like a bitch online Like, right. in, a, in a loving way, and I'm like... It's like, yes, we're, bitch, and it's like, whoa, we're not, we're not we're like friends. that. We're not, we're not to the point where you can just be calling me a bitch. Right. <laughs> Even lovingly, it's like, no, I don't know you. Yeah, very, very strange, very strange. Um, but yeah, I, I love the the way that all of these characters work together. I love the way that all of them have different relationship dynamics depending on who they are or even who's around them when they're Mm -hmm. communicating. Mm -hmm. I just think that this movie is so expertly crafted in that way and it is such a bummer that it didn't do well but I like 
on like a practical sense, it's like, I'm sad that this didn't do well because everybody who was on this deserved success. Obviously many of them did get success later in life and that's fantastic. And yes, it does kind of add to the street cred a little bit that empire records is a cult film. It's a film. So many people love dearly, but it's, you you, kind of have to be in the know to know. Yeah. And that's cool. But it it is kind of a bummer. It's like, man, like so many people out there probably haven't seen this movie that would love it. Or like this movie would have changed their life. I mean, I ended up putting on my Instagram about how this movie had a one star review on Roku. And I had so many people. Most people were like, that's bullshit. How fucking dare they? And I'm like, right. But there were other people who were saying, oh, I've never seen this movie. I've been meaning to. And I'm like, you'd probably love it. It's mm-hmm. great. I don't really know. Who wouldn't love this movie because it's just, I don't want to say wholesome, but it's positive. I mean, the one knock against it, which is the case with every movie from this era, is that it is exclusively a white movie. Well, of course. Like, um, that's, that's every always movie a from problem. every era, basically, God, up yeah. until recently. Like, the, the lack of diversity is obviously a problem. Um, there is obviously, like, a little tinge of homophobia with the stuff with Rex, but, like, it does, it's not malicious. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does track differently. I, I know it's a blanket statement that we say with every old movie, but, at, <laughs> like, the... the the low-key slash high-key homophobia that's kind of embedded in a lot of this. Like, that's not reflective of the, the movie. That's reflective of the culture. There's not any knock that I can make against this movie that isn't just a knock against a larger problem. Yes, that isn't just a knock against, like, society at large at that time. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. I really love this movie. I love re-watching it it always puts me in a good mood this is one of those movies that if it was on tbs in the middle of the day i would just let it play oh yeah it's, it's like so, it's so easy to just come and go which oh yeah especially because it's this movie is just dancing around things like it you're, you're following different people at different points in the day and people are coming and going from work and there's just all these moving parts Shifts it, are changing it feels yeah. very fluid as, as, as everything is just happening within the building. Mm-hmm. And so you can just kind of pop in and out and it just feels like you're getting a part of the experience. And I love that it also jumps in and out between like being on the floor where there are customers and then being in the back where they can really kind of like let it all out mm-hmm. or even being outside or, you know, there's a couple times there's like, oh, they go on their lunch break and they go to an actual like other location. They go to the roof. Yeah, they something, go on the something roof. Something real romantic like, about hanging out on the roof. I love a roof. Yeah. Oh, I love a roof. Um, But like it's specifically got to be an actual roof, not a rooftop diner, not a rooftop. No, that's different. Rooftop diners are all the rage now, though. Yeah. I don't, like I don't want that. I want a roof. But it's different. I want a roof. Yeah. I, I want bird shit and I want a tarred ceiling to help cover it from the rain. Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, there's just something really nice and and comforting about this movie and i like that ultimately it is about saying fuck you to capitalism Mm -hmm. um because they end up you know saving the empire because the guy throw a rager of a party they throw a rager of a party and the guy shows up who's supposed to turn it into a corporate arm and he's like i hate this and i know you love it so keep it yep and I don't know that that party does feel that that that's the thing about this movie and this experience and this time and place that is increasingly becoming rare. It feels romantic. Mm-hmm. Not 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 for the love between like Corey and AJ or something like that. Not the fact that they pair up and are dancing over the final credits of the movie. It's the 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 culture. It's it's romanticizing youth. Mm-hmm. It's romanticizing an appreciation for music. 
for for friends, for all the things that you can have if you're not being beaten down by like fiscal woes or corporate America. If you're not getting beaten down by the man. Yes. I mean, we, yeah, it's and like the ending does come together so nicely. And I've seen people complain about how like, oh, the, the random speed line for Corey or like, oh, the random outburst from Gina, like it doesn't feel natural. It feels out of nowhere. And you have to remember like, this is a slice of life movie. That's kind of how days go. There sometimes are just, shit just comes up. Sometimes you just have a day where some shit happens and mm-hmm. suddenly it's like, here's something you never knew about me despite knowing me for 10 years. And I like that. I think that, that that there's something refreshing about that spontaneity and everything comes together at the end in a way that feels natural. Like she's singing on the roof and mm-hmm. she's she's doing that and what having a good time. It, oh, Sugar High is a great song. So, so catchy, so uplifting, big fan. And, you know, you finally have Corey realizing how she actually feels about AJ and, you know, breaking down that like you're my best friend wall into Oh, okay. I actually see what's going on I love going you, but you're here. so stupid and I hate you. Right. You're which... so stupid, Rose. <laughs> but like, that's such a teenage way of where it's like, oh, I hate you. I love you so much, but I fucking hate you. Like that is teenage well, angsty love. It, it's the, it's, it's, it's the variation of like, shut up doesn't mean shut up. Right. I yes. hate you doesn't mean I hate you. No, it's it just doesn't. Like, I have I have strong feelings and I don't know what they are, so I'm jumping to the most hyperbolic thing I can. I hate you and yes. I love you. Yes. Oh, it's fantastic. I don't know. It just this this movie is just great. It's just great. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I already know the answer, but you know, just for formality's sake, Empire Records is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? This is the kind of movie that had I seen it younger, and I should have, but, you know, we get to things when we get to them. Mm -hmm. I would have been obsessed with it, I think. Uh, And I would have been trying to capture capture this energy everywhere I went. Because I I, I am. Mm -hmm. Naturally, this is the kind of environment I want to exist in and the kind of energy and group of people that I want to kind of function in. Mm -hmm. And... I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of that. I also miss this kind of movie. Where it's just people hanging out in a space and there's a plot, but you're mostly just spending time with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I I just stuff like clerks, stuff like waiting, stuff like w- whatever. Um, not the office, but like other jobs that take place at other. Hey, Abbott Elementary does it quite well. See other movies and shows that take place in sort of like a work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Superstore is also great at mm-hmm. this. Big fan of that. I think. Putting all of these people together who don't necessarily want to hang out, but they have a unified reason for hanging out, in this case, you know, being coworkers, I think that creates really compelling dynamics and you get to collide so many different personalities. And if done well, it's just, it's, 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 there's nothing quite like it for me. I also think that movies like this are so reflective of the world that we actually live in, where you do have to share space with people that you don't always see eye to eye with. You have to interact with people that like outside of this specific instance, you probably would never spend time with this person. Mm -hmm. And I like, I think movies a lot of times try to stay like really clicky or like, oh, we're talking about this subculture of people or this group of people, especially in teen movies, when once you leave high school, the world doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah, it's like this exercise in empathy for the characters, and then that extends out to the audience if you mm-hmm. give yourself over to the movie. Yeah. So 
I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Also, when we were talking about all the characters, I just realized that we didn't really talk about Mark, but he's kind of one note, but he's still like... He's just so delightful. He just pops up and brightens your day and leaves. He's kind of my favorite outside of, of Deb, I think, because mm-hmm. I just think Ethan Embry is wonderful and I'm excited to see him and his sympathetic eyebrows and beautiful eyes and everything. <laughs> I think he's just the best. So um, I'm, I'm happy to see Mark and I we, we could have talked about him more, but I don't really know how deep we would have gone. Yeah. But... No, this this is it's a yes, and it should be a yes, and I just think this is a really wonderful film, and I don't know, I just I miss, I, I miss mid budget movies, I miss slice of life movies like this, mm-hmm. I miss even like the studio indie. Yeah, I do miss that because I do think that when we try to capture these sorts of movies where it's like slice of life, like one day or one evening, the stakes end up getting really, really high. Mm-hmm. And this is no knock to it because I love this movie, but like I think about like a game night where like that movie is really fun, but there's like a really high stakes in that movie. Well, you have People to re- have guns. You have to get like absurdist with like the stakes and like the stakes are immediately high in this one, but like mm-hmm. no one's going to die. Right. Like there's a gun, but like there's blanks in it. It'll be fine. Oh, Warren. Like J- Joe brings Warren under his wing because he he loves, like what is it? He he loves the losers and the mistakes, and that—that's what everyone is. Mm-hmm. So, I, there's there's something romantic and nostalgic that I appreciate. Agreed completely. I think that takes us out on Empire Records. Thank you as always for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. As always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. This I'm very excited about, but what cool band inspired by Empire Records. What an honor. Uh, <laughs> are you recommending this week? Well, before I plug the band, I do want to say, if you're interested in like the music of Empire Records and talking about it, we uh, we ended up guesting on our, our buddy Ben's podcast, Biff Radio, to talk all about the, the soundtrack for Empire Records and why it rules. Hell yeah, we did. So like, we'll be sharing that around the time that this comes out, and you should give that a listen too, because Ben is wonderful. But the band I am plugging for this was a little tricky, because most people who go to the 90s uh, for like inspiration as new bands, they're really sad and... That's not what this is. I I needed something more optimistic. So the band I'm going with has some of that, but like a wide range of feelings. And that is the the band Gladdy with their album, Don't Know What You're In Until You're Out. Mm -hmm. It's a very good fit for this movie. Uh, It's got these really anthemic numbers. Uh, My favorites, Nothing, though um, Mud and Born Yesterday are also really good, like more up-tempo guitar-driven songs. There are, like, slower, ambient, more reflective songs on this soundtrack, too. I think it's just a really, really good listen. I played a bit of it for BJ before we were here, and I, I, I'd like to think that you agreed with me that this is a good mm-hmm. Empire record fit. Oh, yeah, it definitely fits. It, it captures the tone very well. It's all about those vibes, man. All about those vibes. Yeah. <laughs> so if that all sounds good to you and you just want something new that sounds a little Empire Records-y, to go ahead and give Gladdy and their album Don't Know What You're In Until You're Out a listen. Can you spell Gladdy for those at home? G-L-A-D-I-E. Beautiful. Alrighty, we will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye.
we mustn't dwell. No. No, not today. We can't. <laughs> Rex Manning Day. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.